I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with writer Robert Green. Robert is the author of several books. He has a very unique writing style in terms of how he structures his books. And his first book, which is the one that we primarily focused on, is called The 48 Laws of Power. And it's all about human power and human, human social status. How do people acquire and wield and sometimes lose power? What is power and how does it work from a psychological perspective? Robert's style, again, is, is very unique, and he talks about that in our conversation, but his books are sort of part history book, part applied psychology book. They are reminiscent of historical works like The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli or The Art of War by Sun Tzu. So they're sort of like strategy or how-to books written from a historical psychological perspective. And it's very interesting. So Robert has a lot of insights he's collected in his research, spanning all different cultures and times in history, all different kinds of individuals. And he provides a bunch of anecdotes and stories from history, both in the book and in our conversation, to illustrate some basic principles of power. What is it? How do people acquire it? And what does it allow them to do? And so we talk about all that stuff um, in a variety of different ways. We start out the discussion with a discussion of Machiavelli himself, Niccolo Machiavelli, the Italian political scientist, someone who's known by name to many people, but actually a very misunderstood person in history in terms of what he was saying and why he was saying it. So we get into lots of historical stories in the book. We even talk about contemporary examples of power and power moves. At the end, he even gives us his take on Elon Musk's recent move to buy a fairly significant stake of the company Twitter and what that says about what he might be trying to do there. So if you're interested in the nature of human power, the psychology of it, and and how it actually works, this is a fantastic discussion. Robert's a very interesting individual in terms of his background and the way he's able to construct stories to convey very deep and general principles about human nature. So I hope you like it. And as always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing, please do like, share, or subscribe wherever you listen to or watch the podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or someone else. Please also check out my Substack, mindandmatter.substack.com. There you'll find links to all of the episodes, all of the podcast episodes, and where you can find them in audio and video format. You'll also be able to subscribe to my free weekly newsletter, where I provide people with updates on the podcast and a bunch of other interesting stuff that I'm looking at that week. And you can also read my long form science writing, which is typically inspired by some of the conversations I've had on this show. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D 
immunity is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Robert Green. Robert Green, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me, Nick. My pleasure. Can you start off by just telling everyone who you are and and what you do and what you're known for? Uh, my name is Robert Green. Um, I'm an author. Uh, I've written, I have seven books out there, currently working on my eighth book. Uh, the first book was The 48 Laws of Power, and that kind of created a template for the other books that I've written. I'm kind of fascinated by aspects of human behavior and human psychology that aren't really generally covered in a similar way, not in, in the kind of depth that I like to go into, and not from a somewhat neutral, non-judgmental position. So I've written books on seduction, on strategy and warfare, which is quite unfortunately very relevant now. I did a book with 50 Cent, kind of our book together on, on, on the power of being fearless. I wrote a book on mastery called Mastery, which is about how the brain operates when you become, you devote 10,000, 20,000 hours to one kind of creative outlet or arena and how the brain is transformed by that and how anybody can reach that level. And then the last book I wrote was The Loss of Human Nature, which was kind of my in-depth look at the human animal and all of the kind of sort of the dark aspects of our behavior that are kind of in, wired into our brains and how we can overcome some of these darker qualities through self-awareness. And then my head of book came out last year called The Daily Laws, which is kind of a compendium of all my books, one day for each day of the year, kind of a meditation that can help you dealing with all the different aspects of life that I just mentioned. I'm more than that because I'm a human being and I have a life, but that's sort of um, my work. Yeah. And I, um, I discovered you not that long ago, even though you've been writing for, for quite a while at this point. I was, so I read your first book, The 48 Laws of Power. And I came to that because I had been reading um, a little bit more about uh, political science, political strategy, history stuff, um, which is a little bit outside of my main focus. I'm, I'm typically pretty squarely in the sciences in terms of my interests. But I, I read a book called The Machiavellians, which was about a number of Italian political thinkers, um, Machiavelli being one of them. And you start out the introduction or at the end of the introduction to this book, you have a quote from The Prince that Niccolo Machiavelli wrote. And I wanted to read that and then ask you about it. So in, in the book, The Prince, which you quote, he says, any man who tries to be good all the time is bound to come to ruin among the great number who are not good. Hence, a prince who wants to keep his authority must learn how not to be good and use that knowledge or refrain from using it as necessity requires. So who exactly was Machiavelli and what was he trying to say here? 
Well, Machiavelli, um, it's, it's interesting because people know the name and the uh, reputation, which is associated with things rather dark and evil. Uh, but few people know about his actual story. He was from the, the, um, the city-state of Florence. He was born in the 15th century. And um, in the late 15th century, um, he became a Florentine diplomat. He represented Florence and all the different city-states at the time, dealing with the Pope, dealing with Venice, dealing with Naples, etc. And um, he did some negotiations. He was a low-level diplomat. He never had a lot of power. He was involved, though, with negotiations with Cesare Borgia, who was a rather notorious figure in Renaissance Italian history, who is sort of kind of the figure behind the prince, a very dastardly, very amoral character. Uh, but people have to understand that books back then weren't written how books are written now. There's a level of irony to this book, which is the fact that um, shortly after he, he had been involved with Borgia, there was a revolution in, in Florence, which had been a republic, a very democratic republic, and the Medicis came back into power. And Machiavelli was on the side of, of the Republic of Florence. He was not in favor of the Medicis. And because of that, he was banished from Florence. He had, it was kind of humiliating, and he had to live in a village outside of Florence. And as somebody who was sort of obsessed and, and, and fascinated by power, it was a terrible experience. So he wrote The Prince as a way to get back into the good graces of the Medicis. Right, so there was a strategy behind it. So it doesn't rep necessarily represent all of his own views, right? And he kind of exaggerated, and there's definitely levels of irony as there are in all of Machiavelli's texts. Um, but it since became, because of the sort of brutality of his language and how he communicated, which was very, very unusual for the time. So for instance, he's the, he was, um, analyzing the Pope and the Vatican through the lens of power, not through the lens of Christianity. He was mm -hmm. saying that this is, this is a nation, a state that is obsessed with power, that is extremely strategic, that uses its power, and he analyzed it. And that kind of, of frankness and coldness, if you will, was very startling. And over the years, over the centuries, the book has had tremendous influence has influenced people on the dark side of human nature, undoubtedly, people like Stalin, etc. But it's also been something that American, early American presidents who founded our republic read and FDR read and was very much influenced by. Um, and even a lot of left-wing politicians were obsessed with him. So he's a, he's a very interesting character, probably one of the most influential people in history. But the strange thing is he never had much power throughout his whole life. Yeah, I uh, so I came to your book from this other book called The Machiavellians, and prior to doing that, I sort of just had the the cartoon notion of Machiavelli that I think a lot of people have yeah, that's associated yeah. with his name. Like, oh, this guy must have been you know completely power hungry. He was advocating for a completely amoral, uh, detached uh, way of being in the world. And when I read about him, I had the sort of mental flip that happened where 
apparently that isn't the case. He was oh. really a political scientist and an yes. early political scientist. And he was, he was simply interested in understanding the nature of power and how people come to acquire and wield it. And, and he decided that the best way to actually understand it apparently was to take the viewpoint of a scientist, to be detached from your subject and to watch it and observe it as it is yeah. and describe that. Is, that. is that your reading of him as well? Yes, very much so. I mean, I don't know if he, science back in late 15th century, early 16th century isn't what we call science today, but there really wasn't anything that we would call political science and nothing like that existed. So he was kind of charting new ground. Of course, there's never anything totally new in the history of mankind. So we can go back to ancient Greece and Thucydides, um, who was a historian, ancient Greek historian, who had that kind of approach, or to uh, Latin writers like Tacitus or Tacitus. And there were precursors, of course. But to give you an idea of his perspective, one of his most interesting ideas is what he calls effective truth. Um, la verità effettuale, and basically the idea is, you don't when you're looking at analyzing power, you don't look at what people say, you don't look at their reputation, you look at their actions. That that's what you analyze. Of course, you look at what they say, but you look at that through the lens of that is an action that is either propaganda or something that they're using for power purposes. So, as I gave go back to the Pope, for instance, the romantic, um, the non-effective truth would be, you know, it's all about Christianity and spreading the word of, of Jesus Christ, etc. But the effective truth is, look at their actions, look at the Pope's power moves, partic particularly through the lens of, of the times he lived in. And you must understand, the Popes at that time were incredibly corrupt. And a Borgia, a relative of Cesare Borgia, was the Pope at the time an extremely corrupt man, very much involved in power politics, but nobody had the guts to even analyze it that way. So he, he for some reason, he, he is the first person to kind of think of history in those terms. Hmm. And you mentioned the structure of your books and, and the structure of this book was very interesting. I'd never read anything quite like it. So can you describe that structure for people and what led you to write a book with this kind of unorthodox composition? Well, that's a good question. Um, structure has always been very important to me because I think structure communicates as much as anything. So when I'm watching a movie, or I read a novel, the structure, the organization, where the ideas flow is a form of communication. And I wanted to create something new that kind of reflected how I think and how my mind works. And so the first thing that I decided upon, and this kind of grew organically because it was my first book. And as you say, there's nothing else out there like that for better or for worse, just the way it's structured and the way it looks on the page. I was, I've been obsessed with stories. Um, so for instance, I had been living in France and Paris in the early eighties. I was working in a hotel there. Uh, I was very young. And one day the owner of the hotel who was a very literary man, told me the story about Louis XIV and his finance minister, Nicolas Fouquet, and how Nicolas Fouquet threw this incredibly lavish party to impress the king and maybe influence the king to appoint him as his prime minister. 
And the party was such a success and everybody, it was probably one of the greatest parties ever held in the history of mankind. If we actually read the details, the fireworks, the plays by Moliere, the, all the things going on and so the entertainment. Everyone was complimenting Fouquet. The next day, Louis XIV had him arrested and he spent the rest of his life in prison. Hmm. I thought, God, that is such an interesting story. There's like a paradigm there. There's like a lesson and there's something it says about human nature. And that kind of registered in the back of my mind. And I always thought of that story. And so when it came time to write a book about power, that story came right back to me. And I go, well, really what happened with, with Fouquet and Louis XIV was that he gained too much attention at the expense of the king and it made the king inadvertently insecure that maybe this man was more loved by his subjects than the king. And this deeply offended him, but he couldn't admit it. He couldn't tell anybody that. So he had this Fouquet arrested for corruption, for taking bribes, and threw him in one of the darkest prisons in France he never emerged from. So my idea was things, obviously, we don't throw people into prison now if, we, if they hurt our egos. You know, if, you, if you're in a work situation, but what we will do is we will fire them. We won't have Cesare Borgia's brutality where we literally execute somebody to try and use as a scapegoat, but we will, a politician cannot thrive without having convenient scapegoats. Mm. So we humans in the 21st century operate on a more metaphorical level. We use the same strategies, but they're a little bit more concealed. They're not as brutal. And so I want to tell stories in my book. Each chapter is introduced by one of these kind of paradigms, one of these kind of archetypal stories from history. And they're not like kings and queens. There are con artists. I have lots of stories of con artists because I believe we live in a time of con artistry where politicians and business people are basically doing confidence type games. I have stories of magicians. I have stories of entertainers, of actors, etc. the whole gamut. But I wanted to create this kind of circus, this panoply of human history of all of the power players, those who succeeded and those who failed, and kind of rooted in this history and tell the lessons of power that I have learned through my research, through the lens of all of these different stories. So I tell the story, I kind of interpret the story, and then maybe I tell the second story, and then I go into the ideas and the philosophy behind it. Also, sometimes um, illustrated with stories. And at the end of the, each chapter, I have what's called a reversal, which means this law, I call these laws, like never outshine the masters, the first one. You may want, this law might be completely useless. I might have the totally wrong idea. Let's look at it from the opposite angle. Maybe the opposite idea is correct, because I don't like people who are so rigid in their thinking, who just apply exactly what I'm saying. Maybe Doing the opposite is what you need to do in certain situations. And then on the margins of each chapter, I have fables from La Fontaine, from Aesop, stories from history that are kind of entertaining, that are quoted on the sides, that illustrate it. So it's kind of a, a full picture where it's taking you in all sorts of different directions. And quite frankly, it could have completely failed when it came out in 1998 because it is so different and weird. Um, but in some, for, for whatever reason, it has the opposite has happened. 
Yeah, it is a very unique structure. I want to emphasize that to people. Um, for me, at least, it did a great job at holding my attention because we were never sticking with one one story for too long. And you did a great job at sort of pulling out some of the the psychological principles that were common to what would other, otherwise be seen as just completely unrelated historical yeah. scenes and things. And you know, while we're while we're just starting here, I wanted to ask you the simple question: What is power? And and to do that. I wanted to read just a sentence you have towards the beginning to get us started there. You say that power is a game. This cannot be repeated too often. And in games, you do not judge your opponents by their intentions, but by the effect of their actions. And so I just want to kick it back to you for the, for the question of what is power and, and see what you have to say. Well, um, it's a notion that comes from Marcus Aurelius, or it's an idea, the great um, Latin writer, philosopher, Stoic, who had this metaphor that when two people, men, are in a boxing ring and they're hitting each other and it's getting violent and you're trying to like knock the other guy out, if somebody hits you, you don't stand back and go, why did you do that? You should, you're not being fair. That's not, don't hit me. The rules of the game are this is what the arena is like. This is what life is like. So don't complain. Just learn how to play the game well. So my idea of power is that I basically kind of rooted in very elemental human psychology. Going back, I believe, hundreds of thousands of years, we humans as an animal cannot stand the feeling of having no control or influence over our environment. This is what has stamped us as a species. This is how our brain operates. And when we get in moments where we feel vulnerable and helpless, all kinds of emotions are churned up motions that can get us in trouble as we struggle to gain some kind of power or influence over the situation, right? So um, so the idea is that um, these kind of situations, so the idea for you listening out there, if you have no way to influence your children, your spouse, your boss, your career going forward, it is the most miserable uh, emotion that you can have, right? And it's gonna cause you to act in ways that can be very counterproductive. So power is the ability to have some degree of influence over control over these various different elements. You can never have complete control that's not possible, nor is that desirable. Human beings are very complex. You can have a margin the ability to persuade people that you have a good idea, the ability to get somebody interested in your project, your business, your screenplay, the ability to get your children to perhaps listen to you and, and direct their attention in some way. And in order to have that kind of power or control that I say is built as a desire that we all share, if you're completely, if you allow these emotions that, that, that churn up in moments of vulnerability and powerlessness, you're going to make very bad decisions. So you need to have some distance. You need to have some detachment, which was sort of going back to how Machiavelli looked at it. So if it's like a game, if you're playing chess on this board with your career, with all the different Machiavellian characters in your office, I'm not saying everybody in your office is Machiavellian. Maybe only one out of 20 or 10 is like that, but they can cause a lot of trouble. The ability to see that as like a chessboard as opposed to personal. 
I'm trying to get you out of the idea of thinking everything is personal. Everything is about me. Everything is about my emotions. First of all, it's going to wear you down. It's going to make you sick. You're going to get all kinds of diseases, et cetera. But second of all, it's going to make you act in ways that are not strategic, not rational. It is a game. It is a chessboard that you're playing. And you have to make the right moves. And in order to make the right moves, you have to think in a certain way with that level of detachment, with a level of distance. That does not mean that you are completely cold and that you are brutal and that you push people around, which is a complete misconception about my book. There are many, many chapters where part of that game is understanding the people you're dealing with, their psychology, their needs, and winning them over to your side in a way that is not that, that is in their interest as well. So, uh, you know, chapters about appealing to their self-interest as opposed to thinking of your self-interest, et cetera. But all of the laws have the sense of, I'm looking at my life and my career and the people I deal with from a sense of detachment and I'm analyzing and I'm saying, this is what I've done right, this is what I've done wrong, how can I do better, et cetera. And to me, I mean, it's kind of a verbose way, but that's sort of how I would define power. Yeah, and um, you do point out at multiple places in different ways that it's a mistake to believe that the ultimate form of power is independence. Like you're you're unconstrained by by relationships and other things, and you can just sort of do whatever you want if you are the the ultimate powerful person. And that you know power involves relationships between people. So so what is what is the important point there about the role of relationships? Well, we're a social animal to the core. And there is no such thing as somebody who can operate in a vacuum, who can have power without having to deal with people on some level. I mean, um, even the worst kind of tyrant had to deal with all the courtiers around them and all kinds of threats and conspiracies, et cetera. So, you know, I have several laws on there about the dangers of being isolated and not having information that's, that's very direct from what's going on around you the dangers of offending the wrong person, of offending people in general, right? So it's an incredibly complex social game. And it's, it's all about your awareness. So if you're always thinking of yourself, which is the problem that most people have in the power arena, if you're inward and you're thinking about what you need to get and what people, what you deserve and the recognition and attention you should have, and whether that person is mean and is trying to hurt you, et cetera, you, you're not able to kind of step back and have the analysis that, we, that we're talking about, right? So um, I want you to get out of yourself. I want you to see it as a prime, as a preeminent social game, if we're going back to the game metaphor. And every move that you make, you have to constantly deal with the complexities of all the different people that are going to be influenced. So one action that you take on one person around you is going to have reverberating effects on all the other people around you. They're going to react and they're going to do something to you. And so they're going to create these waves that are going to continue on into the future. You have to be very aware that it's not about you, but that it's about this intricate, intricate layers of different social levels that you're dealing with. And so, you know, for instance, you look at right, an example right now, the war in Ukraine, something I'm following very closely, and you see 
someone like Putin, who has had to deal with a social game in the power politics of Russia. And the power politics of Russia are very brutal. It's something I've been there. I've studied it quite closely, right? And so he's had to learn over the years how to kind of manipulate all these men, mostly men around him and make them completely subservient to him. And it creates this kind of grandiosity in, in a figure which is very dangerous. And I have many examples of emperors, of rulers, of even presidents who succumb to this kind of grandiosity. Like I have so much control over these people that I can do anything I want. And here he launches a war. I'm simplifying things obviously to some extent, but he's not seeing all of the other layers of, of, of consequences that are gonna come back at him, like his reputation in Europe, how the Germans are gonna react, how the Americans react, the economic sanctions, the people of Ukraine and how their, um, their morale and how they react to this is the most important factor of all. He's so locked in himself that he's not seeing the social aspect and all the different little um, triggers that could cause him a much problems that he had never foreseen. So power depends on your sensitivity to every single person around you. And one of the figures in the 48 laws, one of the archetypes is King Louis XIV, who I talked about in the beginning. And Louis XIV saw the world as this kind of one large palace, literally embodied in the palace of Versailles, in which there were thousands of courtiers who lived there at the same time and including the staff at the palace, the housekeepers, the valets, etc. His mentality was, I have to be aware of the psychology of each person around them. If I start offending the cook or the housekeeper, that's going to have it reverberate to other layers of this palace of Versailles and it's come back to hurt me. I want everybody on my side. I want everybody to love their king, obviously for purposes of power, so it's not all philanthropic here. But somebody like that was powerful because if he was sensitive to all the different social dynamics in one place in that palace of Versailles. Yeah, I mean, this is sparking, uh, I think, questions about the role of deceit and also self-deception in, in power dynamics. And, you know, if we, if we go back to the Machiavellian idea of distinguishing between the formal and, and effective Truths, you know, what people are doing versus what people are simply saying. You know, it brings up ideas here around the role of of language and deception. So, so language is, you know, arguably the quintessential thing that humans do that that other animals can't do. And deception is also a very human thing. Other animals deceive each other, but not in the same kinds of ways that humans are capable of. So can you speak a little bit about the role of language and deception in human power dynamics? Well, the only slight correction I would give there, because you're, you're totally right, is that chimpanzees and higher primates reveal levels of deception that are on much higher plain than other animals. So it's clearly something that's very much involved in primates. And there are many... And people have called chimpanzees the Machiavellian animal and mm. that we've descended from that. So there are many species that involve complicated forms of deception and primates are, are sort of supreme at that. But part of the problem um, for the human animal is that we're gifted with consciousness and rationality, but at the same time, we're governed very much by emotions. And um, are, are you a neuroscientist? Yeah. 
Okay. Well, so I'm probably going to be making a fool of myself in this explanation. So please correct me. But um, basically, um, emotions create kind of chemical and electrical responses in our body physically that are much more powerful than the little things going on in our neocortex and all the kind of thinking and thoughts. And when you have an, an emotion, it releases these powerful hormones, et cetera, even adrenaline into your system that, and you don't even know necessarily why they're being, why the source of them. And then you start thinking about them afterwards and you kind of ascribe a purpose or a context to them that may not necessarily be there because the idea that our emotions are random or that we don't control them is deeply disturbing to us. But we are largely governed by emotions more than by our rationality because they're much more powerful. And so when we're looking at people and we're looking at the world around us, we're not necessarily reacting to, we're not analyzing what is really going on. What is really, what is the thought behind this person saying that or behind their actions? We're looking at the surface. We're looking at the words they say. We're looking at the tone of their voice. We're looking at how pleasing and charming they are. We're looking at their smiles. We're looking at whether they like us or whether they don't like us. It's the animal part of our nature to react to the appearances that we see in the immediate environment, as opposed to stepping back and going, appearances can be very deceptive. And so you have people in this world, and I'm not gonna say the percentage of, some people have estimated it as 5% of the population. It's just a number that understand that humans are very easy to deceive and they actually want to be deceived. They like fiction, they like stories, they like stories that kind of fit into what they wanna believe, right? And so if you give them the appearances that please them, that satisfy them, they will believe anything that you, you say, they will be distracted from your actual actions, right? Which is how magicians are able to work they're constantly kind of distracting you through their words, through their other things, from what they're actually doing, from the tricks that they're playing. That's how magicians operate. That's how con artists operate. In the book, I analyze the, the con game itself and how you have a front that kind of impresses people like, wow, this looks like a real bank. I'm going to go put my money into it. Whereas this great con artist, Yellow Kid Vile, created a fake bank. He took a bank that had gone out of business. He then rented it for a cheap price. He then filled it with all of his actors as if it were a real bank. He opened it up and people came in and they invested like thousands, thousands of dollars. And then he just took it and ran away with, his, with the gains that he'd made because he created this front, this illusion of something real. If you create the appearance of reality because people are so attuned to how things look, to how they feel, you can then easily deceive them. So we are creatures that unfortunately are incredibly gullible. We're wired for gullibility. And um, I wanted to make a point here in power that you need to try and get rid of that a little bit. I don't wanna make you cynical. I don't wanna make you think that everything around you is a conspiracy, that everything around you, everybody's using power moves. But I want you to be aware that maybe what this person is saying isn't the reality of what they're actually feeling. Maybe they're thinking something else. Maybe they're trying to charm you because secretly they envy you. I want you to open up your eyes to the fact that appearances are not reality. 
yeah, the, the, the example of the magician is powerful because I think it sort of makes it very clear what the power of the presentation is and, yeah. and having the right presentation in conjunction with the ability to draw people's attention to one place and misdirect their attention from another place so that they don't actually see everything that's going on and they see only what you want to present. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about you know, the role of attention or, or capturing and directing people's attention. Um, you know, I think from an early age, we all understand that everyone wants attention. We all want some amount of attention um, to come to ourselves. And um, it's very clear now that with technology and social media, especially we live in what people often call the attention economy. And we're all very, very clearly competing with everyone else to capture as much of that attention as possible. So what is the role and importance that attention and capturing attention plays in acquiring and maintaining power or status? Well, it's absolutely critical because, um, you know, if, if um, power is often a game of appearances of your ability to manipulate appearances, it all depends on how many people you can get to recognize you to look at what you're doing, right? And so there's the famous quote from P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum is one of the icons in the 48 Laws of Power that um, no attention is, no controversy is bad controversy or no attention is bad attention. In other words, if I create something that is obviously repulsive, that's obviously I'm bamboozling the public and all the press gets upset, he doesn't care because they're talking about him. And if they're talking about him, people go, wow, that Barnum, he's so clever. And it, and it was, you know, his strategy. So I have a chapter in the book called Court Attention at All Cost. And it's kind of, I, I'm saying it's a, a bit of a zero sum game. There's not an infinite amount of attention out there, even though with social media, it has certainly gotten exponentially a lot greater, but it's not infinite. So whenever there's attention on you, there's not going to be attention on somebody else, right? So you want to somehow try and monopolize that attention. And, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the weird examples in, in, in recent times for me was the phenomenon of Donald Trump. People often were saying, did Donald Trump read The 48 Laws of Power? And I would say, I, I don't think Donald Trump reads books, quite frankly, and I don't think he's read my book. He doesn't need to read my books. And as much as I cannot stand the guy, and I've admitted it many, many times, he was absolutely perhaps the greatest genius at this idea of courting attention of all costs, of playing the P.T. Barnum rule, infuriating people with things that he would say that were outrageous, that would get under their skin, that would goad them. But they were continually talking about him. They were obsessed with him. And that was his idea of power. Of course, it's a limited form of power because it can't, that can't be your only game. But I remember traveling at the time when he was president to the far corners of the planet, and people were talking, obsessed with him. They were that's all they could talk about. So that is an incredible form of power, right? So it's not just simply getting attention. It's the quality of that attention and how easily people are distracted. And the problem with social media, and I have a lot of celebrities who come to me for advice on this, is how do you keep that attention, right? It's so evanescent now. It's not the same as it was 50, 60, 100 years ago, right? You're in the limelight now, people are following, then somebody younger comes along, they're not paying attention to you, it's humiliating. And then if I keep doing the same things, I look desperate, et cetera, et cetera. So the attention game 
is part of the power game. So if you're looking at che the chessboard analogy to go back to, let's just, to give a bad example, let's just say attention is one of the pieces on that chessboard, right? You must not think in terms of, I just have to do anything. You have to be strategic about that. So sometimes being outrageous will get you attention. Sometimes being the clown will get you attention, like it worked with Donald Trump. But then it's hard to hold that, right? And then people will, will get tired of you and they'll go on to somebody else. So you have to look at that as, as another kind of power game. And how can I change my game up? I think the people who are most brilliant at the attention power dynamic are able to surprise the public. They're able to do go here and then suddenly come from an angle and go here. They surprise, they do something different. They have a different approach. They gain attention for something else. You know, you're, you're a businessman like Elon Musk. You get attention for, for doing saying something kind of outrageous that offends people on Wall Street. Everyone's talking about you. Then you do something much different from a different angle where you're suddenly giving to Ukraine all of these this new satellite software system. You've got like eight different moves in your arsenal and you're coming at the public from different directions. You change it up. That's a kind of attention that you can sustain. It would take a whole new book for me to write about social media and the power game. Although I think the rules that I wrote about still largely apply, but it is much more complicated in this day and age to keep that game, to sustain that kind of level attention. You mentioned P.T. Barnum, and he comes up quite a bit in the book. Can you remind people who he was? And, and more specifically, you know, you give examples of the book of things that he did, which would seem completely weird or counterintuitive to most people. So, for example, he would, he would take his worst critics, he would take journalists writing terrible reviews about his shows or whatever, and he would then invite him to his shows and give them the best seats in the house. Yeah. So what on earth was going on when he was doing those kinds of things, and what was that actually doing for him? Well, well, the great thing about P.T. Barnum is he's a quintessential American. He's a quintessential salesman and showman, one of the great showmans in history. And it's kind of an archetype that's very, very, very American. And P.T. Barnum learned very on in his career. I don't remember the exact anecdote where he did something that got very bad press that people thought was really vulgar and stupid. And yet it made him the public kind of flocked to his exhibit. He goes, well, that shows that anything that I do or say that gets attention will, will, will work to my benefit. And he would do things like this. He had a museum in New York, uh, the American something museum, which he would show things that were really kind of strange oddities, like something from Ripley's Believe It or Not, like bodies with two heads and things like that, some of which were completely fabricated. He would claim that this creature had been taken from the sea, but actually it had been sewn together cleverly by some scientists to look like the real thing. So he had this museum that people flocked to for that reason. And he knew that for some reason, the attention some days wasn't working. People weren't going as into it as much as he wanted. So he did things like he hired the worst musicians he could find to sit outside nearby the museum and play the worst music. So irritating, annoying. And in order to escape the music, people would have to go inside of his museum because it's the only place that they could escape hearing these horrible sounds. You know, things like that were kind of tricking people to enter his museum, you know, and, and so 
his thing was, if I'm outrageous, what happens? Even if I, I have, you know, I have an exhibit of the oldest human being 200 years old, and people know that there's nobody's 200 years old, that can't really be true, you know, but a part of people were still sort of entertained by the idea of it, right? By the idea of these oddities. So once he created this reputation, anything he did, people would go, there must be some trick up his sleeve. There must be something behind it. And even if people saw through him and saw that he was a fake, they were still fascinated to see what kind of fakery he would do next. So you were talking about appearances. I have a chapter on reputation. And this kind of goes back to, if you create a reputation for like that, it's like a magnet of attention and power because people are always thinking, what will you do next? I'm fascinated by you. And once you fascinate people and you get them guessing, what is this guy up to? What will he do next? You've won the attention power game in my mind. Yeah. So a lot of this reminds me of, and you also mentioned Elon Musk, who runs the company Tesla. So it reminded me a lot of the, the historical uh, scenes that you described between Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison in the book, which are fascinating. If, if people haven't read or heard about that story, it's a very interesting uh, part of history to read about. So the name Tesla today is very famous because of Elon Musk's car company. Um, but the story of Nikola Tesla is a famously tragic one because his competitor, Thomas Edison, sort of won the battle in many ways at the time between DC and AC current. And I believe Tesla ended up dying in poverty. And sort of what's what's so curious there that I want you to comment on is, you know, almost anyone who is probably knew them at the time or, or looks back on the history would agree that Tesla had the superior intellect and the superior scientific mind. He was just, you know, brilliant, almost savant-like person. But sort of Edison ends up winning in many ways. So what did Edison understand about marketing and, and power that Tesla did not? Well, yeah, I mean, you're very right. Tesla was one of probably one of the great geniuses. He had like this visual imagination that was something uncanny, where he could see um, the workings of some elaborate machinery or motor in his mind and all the moving parts, and then he could put it on paper, the kind of eidetic imagery that is just very, very rare. It is a savant-like power, okay? The point that I'm making in that story and that I make throughout the book and that I make in all of my books and I tell people is that the talented, the creative don't often win in the game of life, don't often win the power game. That often it's the ones who are the least creative who are the producers of a movie and not the actual writers or actors, etc. They're the people who steal your ideas, who are waiting in the wings. You come up with something clever, they buy you out like Google or, or, or Facebook will do, etc. So the creative, the talented, in many cases don't win because very talented, creative people like a Tesla are naive. They think that the world operates only by you know, your talent by your ideas that results matter, right? And in an ideal world, if we humans were more like angels instead of primates, that is how things should operate, that a Tesla is rewarded for his creative thinking, for all his great ideas. And Edison, who was a, who was a good scientist, but was not on his level, would not be rewarded as much, right? But that's not the world we live in. So Tesla was easily duped and deceived time and time again by Thomas Edison, who understood 
that to be a successful scientist wasn't, you know, this was a period in American history where, where inventions were incredibly important. And there was a, a very creative period in American history. Just think of all the incredible things like the phonograph, the telephone, the movie camera, things that Tesla himself were involved in. Just incredible ferment of, of these inventions going on at one point. But he realized that it doesn't help to have some great idea if you can't get financial backing, if you won't get people interested in it, if the public doesn't care. So if you get the public interested in an idea where they're clamoring for this invention, then you'll find the investors. So it doesn't mean you can't be just like the scientist thinking that all that matters is think my little notations on paper and my equations, etc. It has to have a, 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 a marketing dynamic, right? So um, when he was trying to influence investors in the light bulb, which is probably his greatest invention, um, people thought it was ridiculous. It was very impractical. He would put on these shows for the press and for um, the financiers. They would show these incredible light shows with the, showing them what a whole city he would have the whole city, a model of the whole city of New York lit up by these, these, this electric light. And he gave a, a visual impression of it. Well, that really impressed people. And then it created this momentum in the public and in, in, in the press that we need to have this product, right? So he understood that you had to have this element. And even he understood that if he had a rival and there were other rivals on the scene, doing light bulbs or who's still doing gas, lantern lighting, that he had to crush them. He had to humiliate, he had to push them off the stage that only he could have the attention. And so he played that game with uh, Tesla in a very kind of cruel way because Tesla was creating a different form of electrical charge. I, I believe it was DC as opposed to, I, I can't remember which. Um, and um, Edison, to show that his form of his electrical current was unsafe. He had, he, he had cases where animals were being electrocuted by that DC charge, as if people were gonna be electrocuted if they bought Tesla's uh, invention, which was totally bogus. But he created these very kind of amoral exercises to kind of turn people away from Tesla and think that only Edison's form of the electrical current was proper on and on and on and on. And Tesla, who, as I said, was one of the most brilliant people in, 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 in our history, he basically lived in poverty. Yeah, so you draw, this, his life. You draw this analogy between uh, hunters and, and scavengers. You say at one point, it may have even been around the story of Edison and Tesla, you know, the, the world of power has the dynamics of the jungle. There are those who live by hunting and killing, and there are a vast number of creatures who live off uh, live off the hunting of others. You talk about vultures, for example, as, as a, a very successful scavenger in the world of animals. So what more can you say there about, about that analogy, especially from the perspective of how one would best protect oneself and prevent yourself from being tricked or conned by other people? Well, everything in the game here, we keep coming back to this theme, is your level of awareness and your level of detachment, your ability to analyze and not taking things personally and not being so wrapped up in yourself. So um, realize that if you have an idea, somebody out there is wanting to try and steal it probably, right? And there are people like that who thrive, are not very creative, 
but are the people that are the money, the producers of something, etc. They literally thrive on scavenging other people's ideas. And I have that chapter in there called get other people to do the work, but always take the credit, which on the surface is a very kind of cruel law. But I wrote that looking at it from the other side of the coin. So I had been working prior to writing that book in Hollywood. And Hollywood is, a, is an arena that absolutely um, depends on that law, where hundreds of people are doing all the dirty work, the electricians, the directors of the DPs, directors of photography, the writers, the, 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 the cast and crew, et cetera. But in the end, nobody ever hears about them. Nobody ever knows how incredibly creative perhaps the production designer was or how the, the director of photography, how the great look of the film doesn't come from the director, comes from this person. And only the actors and the director are getting the attention for it. They're the ones that get all the credit, right? And it happened to me time and again where I was working for a, a, a director and a writer and I would write whole bits of dialogue for him because I was very good at dialogue. And nobody ever knew that. Nobody ever knew it. He put his name on it as if he had written the whole thing. And it was infuriating and it was kind of humiliating for me and it made me very bitter. And I realized later on, as I was writing the 48 Laws of Power, that being bitter and resentful was the wrong approach, that mm -hmm. I was violating my own laws. That if I stepped back and I realized, first of all, this is part of the game, it's natural, it's normal in this environment, just accept it, and just bide your time and don't take it personally. Perhaps I could have made it clear to him that I was really good at this, at this writing this kind of thing. And maybe he would have said, Robert, I want you to write a screenplay for me. And maybe I could have parlayed that into something powerful. But by being resentful and taking it personally, I closed off all sorts of avenues and strategies. So sometimes you have to accept the fact that this is the dynamic, that when you're young, people are going to exploit you. They're going to use your, your youthful energy for their own purposes. How do you deal with that? Can you deal with it not getting all emotional upset, but sort of strategically, how, what can I get out of it? Maybe in my writing that dialogue, I was gaining some skills that I can use later on for my own purposes. And other times you have to be very wary and you have to understand that there are people out there who are going to steal my idea, who are going to buy my company out. You have to protect yourself. You have to find avenues of defense. You have to not be so trusting. You know, a common um, problem that I deal with in, in my consulting work is somebody is looking for a business partner, right? And they hire someone who they think is very charming and very um, pleasant to be around and who has a good resume. They hire them in and this person proceeds to steal the company from them, right? And if you had just been a little bit more wary and you realize that there are people like that out there who are looking to ride off what you build, maybe you wouldn't have been more careful in hiring somebody like that. So I just want you to realize that there are these sharks, these vultures out there, and to not necessarily not become paranoid, but the person that you're maybe partnering with, or that person who might be interested in your project, they might also be interested in stealing your project. That's the main idea. Another thing that you emphasize well in the book is the power of kind of mental or strategic fluidity of not being, you know, completely, completely locked into one strategy and to always be 
be analyzing things in a context specific manner just because right. the world is is ever changing you you have a famous napoleon quote at one point that says the laws that govern circumstances are abolished by new circumstances so so right. what does that mean and what is the importance of this kind of flexibility in your thinking well it's a form of strategy and thinking that um I, I'm generalizing here, but I find is more Asian than Western. So Asian forms of strategy, going back to Sun Tzu, but even in like Taoism, et cetera, are much more looking at life in the context sense and looking at things as being completely fluid, that nothing is set in stone, that the circumstances we're dealing with are complicated. We, we're only seeing one part of the picture. And that if we follow a linear form of approach to something, we're probably not taking into consideration all of these complex ideas, all the different circumstances. And so um, somebody like a, a Sun Tzu said, you have to be like water. You have to be fluid. You have to conform to each situation, right? And so uh, one of the icons in the 48 Laws of Power is one of the greatest samurai warriors in Japanese history, called Miyamoto Musashi. And back in those days, we're talking about 17th, 18th century Japan, um, you're, at, you're in a sword fight to the death. So one wrong move and you're dead. And this man was in like 50, 60 sword fights through his life and he won every single one of them. He was absolutely unbeatable. And what was his method? He never repeated the same strategy twice. Each time he faced an opponent, he looked at them in the eye, he looked at their psychology, he looked at their spirit. He had a word for it, I can't remember the Japanese word, but he would catch their spirit. He would catch how they were thinking. He would go inside their mind. He would feel what they were feeling. And based on what he intuited, he would then completely adopt his strategy to that and never repeated it. So people never knew what he was going to do next, right? So the idea is that you're kind of trapped in this sort of linear way of thinking. We're so black and white, we're so linear, and it's something very much embedded in Western ways of thinking. And it comes out in the different forms of warfare that we use, in which we kind of want to bomb the other side. We want to just brutalize them and destroy them and not be so creative. Napoleon was very kind of Asian in his thinking. He was very fluid. And that's what made what, what fascinates me about him and why he was probably the greatest general, Western general in history. But if you're able to see that what you're, the circumstances you're facing now are not what you faced a month ago or a year ago, particularly the way the world is now, and that you have to be in the moment, you have to be fluid. And um, so the, in Zen philosophy, because I'm very much fascinated by Zen Buddhism, it's called stopping the mind. Whenever your mind fixates on an idea or an emotion, it stops. And the mind, the, what's happening is just fluid. It's like water. It's continually changing. But you're stopping here. And the moment your mind stops, you're disconnecting from the circumstances around you. You have to move with each second, with each circumstance. You must never stop the mind. You must flow with everything that's going on around you and adopt your strategies to that. And the greatest disasters in human history come from people like in warfare who think that the last battle that I won, the last war that I fought is exactly what I must apply this time. It's also all the disasters in business. And I think this is definitely um, 
um, coming out this way in, excuse me, in Putin's war in Ukraine, where he saw that this strategy that had worked in Syria, that had worked to some degree in Georgia, that had worked in Chechnya, that had worked in the Crimea, he can now apply it to the Ukraine without considering the fact that circumstances were, are completely different. So it's a trap to always have the mind stop and fixate on what happened six months ago, because the mind of memories are generally embedded with emotions. The strongest memories are embedded with emotions. So if something you did six months ago was successful, it resonates in your brain with this extra aura of wow, and it's charged with emotions of success, of elation. And you're naturally, the brain will naturally return to that feeling. The same thing will happen in the opposite or something bad happened. The fear element will embed that in your memory. And then you won't do that, even though that might be exactly what you need to do at this moment. So you, in order to be a strategist and play the power game, you almost have to work against the inclinations of the brain that want to draw you into the past. So you, you, in many ways, this, this is kind of a, a history book. Like you cover so much ground historically, so many different episodes and different kinds of people from different periods and places in history. What, you know, how, how did you cover so much ground? What was your research process like that allowed you to, to stitch all of these things together? Well, I had worked um, for many years prior to writing The 48 Laws of Power. I had done research. I'd been a journalist and then working in Hollywood. People would often hire me on some kind of historic film to do all the research for. And I'm, I'm not, there's not a lot of things that I'm good at in life. I, I can't dance or sing, et cetera, but I am good with libraries and research. Back in the day, it was libraries. So I knew how to navigate that world very well. And believe it or not, it is a skill. It's a skill almost like playing a violin. I learned how to find one book in one section of the library that like uh, uh, um, would open up this, this like treasure chest of other books, right? One thing would lead to another. And I had an eye for looking for things, for books that nobody had read for 60, 70, 80 years. Mm. I remember I had one book that I thought was fantastic called Power of the Charlatans. It was the history of all the greatest charlatans in history. And I used that book, a lot of examples in the 48 Laws. I looked in the back where all the dates were stamped on that book. There was like two stamps in it. Like nobody had read this book for so long because nobody had heard of it. And that, I, it. Unfortunately, the internet, I do a lot of my research now on the internet. It doesn't have that kind of richness where you can find that book that is completely forgotten, but it's sitting there on the bookshelf that your eye will catch. You go, wow, The Power of the Shell, what a great title. You pick it off and you look at it and you see it's filled with incredible ideas. And so I had an... I look for things that are dramatic, that are exciting. So I want something that I can tell a story with because a story kind of nails the idea in the reader's mind. If it's entertaining, if it's got a kind of a timeless lesson to it, then it's, I think it's gonna resonate with them. You know, Like I have a story in Renaissance Italy, which, which a lot of the stories come from, where there's this great, mercenary soldier that's known as a condottiere uh, back then who had fought for, I forget which town it was, maybe Siena or Milan. And he'd won all these battles for them. And he was getting more and more powerful. And the citizens 
of Siena or whatever town it was go, how can we reward this man for all that he's done? And somebody says, well, I think we should execute him and make him a saint. (laughs) Yes, that's the right idea. And then like the next day they executed him. And the idea was he'd become so powerful that he'd become a threat, right? And he no longer needed him because there were hundreds of other condottieri's who were younger, who were less expensive, who were less grandiose, that they could replace him. So if you don't make yourself um, indispensable in the situation, if you get too tied up in your own story, in your own myth, you're headed for a disaster. You won't be geared, you won't have your beheaded like this man, but something terrible will happen. Stories like that I, I looked for, right? And, um, and then I wanted to make this a, a book that covered the sweep of human history I mean, it's ambitious, it's grandiose on its own terms. So it meant delving into ancient Chinese history, into stories, looking at the the Indian Machiavelli, a man named Cautilia and his writings, looking at the histories of Japan, looking at the Zulus in Africa, looking at Haile Selassie in Ethiopia. So people don't say, oh, this is just a book about white men and power. No, I have stories of women. I have stories of, of all cultures, of all periods of time. So um, it was a lot of fun. The research aspect was a lot of fun, I must admit. <laughs> so, you know, it, the book really is evocative in many ways of something like The Art of War by Sun Tzu or something like The Prince by Machiavelli. Were books like that explicit influences for you? Very much so. Um, so The Prince was something that uh, I had read when I was 16 or 17 years old. I still have a copy of it. It was one of those really cheap paperback books. And I obviously probably didn't understand any of it because I was too young. I didn't have any life experience. But I thought, wow, this way of looking at the world is fascinating. Because as a, as a teenager, I could, I could see very well that the world of adults was incredibly hypocritical. And it annoyed the hell out of me. People would say something that they had these values, but their behavior would never match with it, what their reputation is or what they said. And I thought they were... Just everybody around, all the adults around me were so hypocritical. And here was a man analyzing the discrepancy between appearances and reality. This is so refreshing. And it stuck with me for all those years. And there are other writers like that who uh, are like these incredible realists. Because honestly, we live in a world with so much fakery, with so much bullshit, so many people proclaiming that they're great at this. So many people proclaiming that they're saints, that they're so virtuous. And the reality is so different that when you read a writer, I don't care if it's 2,000 years ago, 500 years ago, or 20 years ago, who kind of shines a look and says, this is what's really going on. It's like a slap in the face. It goes, yeah, yeah, man, that is how things are. That is the reality. How refreshing, how exciting. You know, maybe the human animal isn't this angel. Maybe we do have a dark side. It's not all we have, but let's look at it. Let's examine it. Let's not be embarrassed about who we are. And so there are other writers like that. Sun Tzu had a way of analyzing war in that light. There was a great Spanish writer named Baltazar Gracian, who's kind of a kind of a Machiavellian in 17th century Spain, someone I use a lot. I think Friedrich Nietzsche and Arthur Schopenhauer, two German philosophers, who definitely kind of embodied this way of looking at the world. And there are other people and modern writers as well. Um, and I've just 
incredibly attracted to those kind of writers because I find it so refreshing. And when I wrote The 48 Laws of Power, I must admit there was an element of kind of anger behind it in that a lot of self-help books, which unfortunately this kind of got classified as, they're so mushy. They're so like looking at us as if we're all so cooperative. We're all, you know, putting our better sides into play in the work environment. And I had so many different jobs in Hollywood, journalism, working in hotels, working at a detective agency, doing construction work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where I saw that that's not true. That's not the reality. Let's be real. Let's say that people who have power, bosses, et cetera, can be very, very manipulative sometimes. And so um, that's the kind of writers who inspired me, who kind of had that same sort of feeling that I did. One of the things, well, you, you mentioned an anecdote earlier about an episode that you had when you were younger in Hollywood. I was wondering if you could maybe give some more examples of that kind of thing. Perhaps uh, what, what are some salient aspects for how you conduct yourself today in your professional re- relationships that you, uh, you wouldn't have been uh, tuned into when you were younger? Well, I made many mistakes and some of the mistakes inform the 48 laws of power. And I've made, I've been very frank about this before. I'm not, I'm similar to Machiavelli. I'm not as, as, as brilliant as he is, but I'm similar in the way that I came from places that I was not powerful at all. I have never held a position of power in my entire life, even though now maybe I'm closer to that in, in, in kind of through my books, but um, I was an observer and I made many mistakes. So Law number one is never outshine the master. And on several occasions, I had outshone the master. So I was working on a television show, who I won't mention who the producers are. Um, And our job, my job was to find stories that this television show could use as a researcher, true stories. I was by far the best person on the staff. If, if, If 10 stories had been found, for, for a season, seven or eight of them would have been mine, right? As I said, I'm not good at a lot, but I was good at that. And so I thought that that's all that mattered was just getting results, getting things done. And then lo and behold, the boss starts getting really pissy with me. And it was a woman and she's like, making clear that she doesn't like me, that she thinks I have an attitude, that something is wrong with my work. And if somebody keeps acting like that on you, saying you have an attitude, you're not a team player, it kind of has a self-fulfilling aspect. You kind of gain an attitude because they keep saying that you have one. So I admit I probably got a little bit um, negative towards her in some ways. And then I got fired. Like, whoa, I was by far the best person on that staff. And you're firing me and you're firing me because I had an attitude. And then later on, as, and I made the mistake a second time because I wasn't aware later on in analyzing it, probably as I was writing the 48 Laws of Power, I think just prior to that, I realized that I had probably made her, in this one case was a woman, the next case was a man, I had made her insecure. I had made her think that I was better than her, like Nicolas Fouquet in that four, Louis Fourteenth story and that I had triggered her insecurity. And in triggering her insecurity, 
she made, she kind of didn't want to admit it to herself because we humans are very good at self-deception. She doesn't want to admit that some low researcher person is making her a producer feel insecure. She develops this idea that he has an attitude. He's an, he's a he doesn't like me, he's a negative person. And then she found an excuse like Louis XIV did to get rid of him and to fire him. And so my emotional response to her getting kind of negative with an attitude was what made things worse. Now, in the end, I was happy that she fired me because I hated that job, to be honest with you. And I did not like working with her. But if I could, if I had been calm and rational and I could analyze it in the moment, A, I maybe wouldn't have reacted in ways that made it worse. And B, once I was fired, I would have said, thank God. Thank God you fired me. I hated this job. It's a blessing in disguise, as opposed to being kind of bitter and upset and angry. You know, like, fuck you. Why the hell did you do that to me? I was doing the best results. So I, I had violated that law. And there were other laws along the way that I had violated as well. I, mean, I don't want to go on and on and on about this. But um, so a lot of my experiences, not just from my mistakes, but mistakes of other people that I viewed that went into the book. So for instance, working for a director in Hollywood, whose name, once again, I won't mention, he um, had written a screenplay that he wanted to direct, but he knew that if he asked the producer of the film, can I direct this film? It would have looked like he was asking for too much, you know, like he was too power hungry, that he would have too many fingers in the pie. And so his strategy was, he was a very strategic person was, okay, the producer doesn't want me to direct it. He said as much, all right, what I'm gonna do is, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna hire a director to do it. Somebody who's young, who's 28, I think at the time, who had kind of some success in film school, who was sort of hot, but who seemed kind of weak as a character. And I'm gonna hire them knowing that they can't handle it they're going to screw the job up. And sure enough, within a week, things completely fell apart on the set. I was there witnessing it all. And then this man comes in and says to the producer, look, we've got all this money committed. We have to shoot this film. I'm going to come in and direct it. I'm going to save it, right? He's set the whole thing up and he kind of ruined this man's career and this man's young man's reputation and had devastating emotional effects on him because he he realized that he, you know, he kind of melted under the pressure. But the idea that that could be happening, you could be a patsy in a situation. Somebody might be hiring you for purposes you don't realize are the actual reality, right? And so I've seen time and again where people were naive in these different situations and the trouble it got them in. And that includes me. I mean, I could go on and on. I've had my girlfriend and my wife and I just um, once... She sat down, Ken. I've had like 60 to 70 different jobs prior to writing my book. So I had seen it all. And I could give you more and more examples, but that's the tip of the iceberg. So one of the, I think a major thing, a major theme in the book is this, this difference that we mentioned at the beginning, the, the effect of truth and, and the formal truth, the way things appear and the way things actually work. Yeah. That things are often not what they appear. And I wonder if, I guess the question is, you know, if I, if I think of the average person, 
um, who sort of is just watching current events on the world stage. You see, you know, the president of the United States, you see Vladimir Putin, the leader of Russia, you see Xi Jinping or this, that, and the other leader, this, that, and the other organization. There's a lot of, you know, obvious loci of power where you we think all of it's concentrated. But given the theme that things are not always what they seem and that you know, we're often being misled and misdirected and power can be hiding in places and often is camouflaged in ways uh, that, that allow us to miss it. When, you know, based on your research and your knowledge of this area, when you sort of look at the world stage, are there any individuals or organizations you see as being enormously powerful that perhaps the average person wouldn't think of that way? Well, uh, she's no longer in power, but I often thought of Angela Merkel as being a very, very uh, astute player of the game. She had her limitations and she made mistakes. And in retrospect, I would maybe bring her down a notch or two in, in some things. But when I looked at her, how she projected, she was basically the dominant force on the European continent for an incredibly long period of time. This woman who was not charismatic at all, it's a scientist, essentially a chemist, right? And was not a good, necessarily a good speaker or anything. She was kind of bland. She totally dominated the, the scene. And one thing I say in the 48 Laws is often the people who appear to be the most powerful, who appear to be the most uh, charismatic, aren't the ones that really have the power. It's the dull ones. It's the ones who aren't necessarily getting the headlines, who really control the strings of their like the puppet master, right? And so she kind of impressed me that way as somebody who was a consummate player of the game. She was very calm. She always understood the real interests involved in her, for her country and what really mattered. And she was very, very, very strategic in her maneuvers. Um, I remember, so this is, she had a way of thinking that I, I that's what I, I, I glom onto. So there was a famous meeting between her and Putin, because she was not friends with him, but she kind of understood him and, and was trying to work with him for various reasons. And Putin, in this meeting, very cleverly brought his dog there, knowing that Angela Merkel had a tremendous fear of dogs, right? And this would upset her and put her on the defensive. And in this particular meeting, he would get her all emotional, right? And the moment he brought the dog in, she recognized the ploy. She recognized what he was up to. And she stayed calm and she didn't let it happen. But that awareness of, oh, maybe, you know, he just brought a dog. He had no idea. You know, it's just a mistake. And then you get all fearful, et cetera. No, I know this man. I know how fucking clever he is. I know he's always thinking a move ahead. He's always trying to put you on the defensive. He is deliberately bringing that dog in to upset me. Uh, that's brilliant. Another time she's in a meeting with the French president at the time, Nicolas Sarkozy, who's this one of the typical short men, Napoleonic complex. Macron is a bit like that right now, who thinks he's so powerful and in control, et cetera. And he projects that and he's trying to intimidate her. And he's in the meeting and his legs are crossed and his foot keeps nervously going like this. And she realizes this guy is, 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 is shivering. He's nervous. His face projects all of his power, but deep inside, he's actually kind of frightened and timid. So that ability to read people, to kind of step back, that is, is a rare skill. 
when I read about anybody in, in, in the news now, I'm constantly analyzing them through that lens. And she's the one that stands out as someone who's, who's very good at the game. Most people have limitations. That's an idea of, that Machiavelli has, that I think is one of his most brilliant ideas of all. I continually come back to it, it's in The Prince. And the idea is people will often rise to a position of power in any area based on one quality that they have, whether it's aggression, whether it's being a total social charmer, whether it's being good at, at whether they're charismatic. And then they reach a level where that, that one strength is no longer effective because circumstances change. And someone who's aggressive suddenly has to become someone who's flexible and they can't adapt, adopt, adapt, and they're crushed, right? Hmm. So these are most of these people that I see have a flaw, have something that they're not so good at. So Boris Johnson in the, in the UK, he's very clever. He comes from a background in journalism. He's very good with marketing and publicity. He knows how to be kind of a clown and make people laugh. He has self-deprecating humor, but he's also got a blind spot in his personal relationships. He hires bad people who are going to embarrass him, et cetera. So most people in positions of power, and I do a lot of consulting people in these different areas, have like an Achilles heel that is generally their downfall. And so there are very few people you can point to and say they're kind of a well-rounded leader. They know how to be aggressive when it's necessary. They know how to be soft. They know how to do what Napoleon said is, and to put your iron fist inside of a velvet glove so that people feel the soft velvetness of your touch, but inside is like this piece of iron that's firm, et cetera. Most people aren't good at that. And so it's a rare figure on stage that would be. Interesting. What about, what about the opposite? What about you know, offices or institutions or individuals that are popularly perceived to wield a lot of power, but maybe in fact do not? Yes, uh, there are many examples of that. Um, you know, I think uh, we often look at the figureheads because we're appearance-based. So when George W. Bush was president, I think it became quite clear that he really wasn't the person that was controlling everything. It was the Cheneys and the people behind the scene that were kind of pulling the strings, right? And oftentimes in business, I was on the board of directors of a publicly traded company for, for many years. Often in business, the CEO isn't really the person that's controlling things, although they're the public face, they're the one that's getting all of the attention. It's really the figures behind the scene, the board members, the, the chief financial officer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's a notion in sociology that even the person on the top is, is just as dependent on the people below as people below are on the person on top, that it kind of flows in both directions. I forget what the word of that is. But um, so you look at somebody like a Putin who clearly has all the power in Russia, but his power depends on these people who are known as the Silovikis, the men of force, who are not the oligarchs, but the people in government who kind of control all the different the intelligence agencies, the defense, the military, et cetera. He dominates them. He controls them in very ways. He, and I've, I've looked at how he does that. It's very powerful. He makes them dependent on him. But he is equally dependent on them. And they pull the strings. So if they wanted to get rid of him to, tomorrow, they could do that. 
So the game goes both directions as well. You have to see power as this kind of continuous game of flux and the appearances are deceptive. And the person who seems to control everything is not necessarily the person who does, that it shifts day by day. There are balances that the person who controls actually has to depend on other people who kind of have other degrees of influence, et cetera. So it's a fluid game that's continually changing. And, you know, there are plenty of examples, particularly in history, of rulers who we think were very powerful, but in the end were just kind of great figureheads. And it was others behind the scenes who really controlled it. Even Louis XIV, um, prior to that it was Cardinal Richelieu, but then after for Louis XIV, Cardinal Mazarin, and other ministers were the ones that were really wielding the power in France at the time. So um, it's the quintessential man or woman behind the throne who's really the one in power. So that's where you need to analyze it through that lens of Machiavelli, the effective truth. Who effectively really controls it? Who, if they decided to withdraw their approval of the leader, would destroy him? You know, look at the levers of power and analyze it as brutally as you would a scientific formula, because that's how power can be. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned um, we mentioned earlier one last current thing I'd like to ask you about before we wind down is: Did you see the recent news that Elon Musk bought quite a substantial stake in Twitter? Yes, I did. What do you make of that move, and, and what might be going on there? Well, I haven't really studied in depth. There was an article in the paper today, and I didn't have a chance to read it. But it's um, clearly a power move. Clearly, there are things about Twitter that he doesn't like and that he's bumped up against. And so he's bought a 9% share in it, which is going to give him a degree of influence and control over it. And he's somebody who has a kind of a libertarian ideology, um, both politically and, and otherwise, where he believes that there should be complete freedom of expression. He has an idea that the internet should be this area where ideas just flow back and forth. There shouldn't be any kind of um, filtering going on, everything should be direct. And so he wants to have the power to kind of bring this to Twitter. And uh, the little that I read, it it made out as if he had already discussed this with the CEO of Twitter and that they had approved it. But my little Machiavellian brain goes, I don't think so. I don't believe that they're quite so happy about this as he makes out. He's branding this as if, He's going to revive Twitter. He's going to bring it back to its roots. And maybe he's right about that. But there's a law of power that's extremely important, which is preach the need for change, but never reform, preach the need for reform, but never change too much. So people are essentially conservative. They like the idea of reform. They like the idea of change. But we don't like our habits being broken up. We think we know how to do things best. And if somebody comes in saying, we're going to change all of that, we're going to have you do something different. And I see this time and again in the newspaper and history where the reformer is somebody who ends up being ousted because nobody can stand that much change. I have a feeling that the CEO is not so comfortable with this move as they're laying out, playing out. You know, Of course, he has to admit, yes, I think Elon Musk on the board is a fantastic thing. What else is he going to say? But I think they're kind of quaking in their boots that change could be coming. And I don't know if so totally untethering 
and giving complete free speech is necessarily going to be a good thing for Twitter. But Elon Musk is definitely somebody who has an agenda and buying a position on the board is, is a quintessential power move. It's not a move where he wants to just be an advisor. He wants to be able to control and change the direction of Twitter. So you, you've written many books and, and you gave us an overview at the beginning. Are you working on any big book projects right now? And if so, what are those? I'm working on a book now that's very different. It goes in a totally different direction. Um, it's something I've written about briefly in the 50 Cent book and in my Laws of Human Nature, in which I have a chapter on confronting our mortality and death and how it can lead to what I call the sublime. So I'm writing a book on what I call the sublime. And um, it, it, you know, it's, it's a little bit complicated to explain, but I personally had my own near-death experience three, three and a half years ago. I suffered a stroke, which I'm very lucky to be here talking to you. First of all, that I'm alive, that I wasn't alone when it happened. Number two, I didn't suffer permanent brain damage, which I came very close to, but I still can't really walk very well, et cetera. But experience like that changes you. It changes your brain, changes the wiring of your brain, it changes how you look at the world. And it is mostly a positive change in that it opens your mind up to things that you completely take for granted in the world. And books that I write are basically kind of targeted at what I see are problems at the time that I'm writing. So power was about all the hypocrisy in self-help books. Mastery was all about how people don't really understand how the, the powers of the human brain and what it takes to master something, etc. This book is people's thinking about the world has become more and more limited, more and more constrained. We all live in these narrow, narrow little worlds on our smartphone the little echo chambers and social media that we inhabit. And at the same time, science is opening up this incredibly awesome, what I call sublime realm of things going on around us, having to do with big bang theory and physics and, and astrophysics and uh, un, you know, being able to see photographs of a black hole or of distant stars, things in biology kind of trying to uncover cover the secret of the origins of life and evolution and why the dinosaurs disappeared. The chapter I'm writing about right now is about the brain and the marvels of the brain. And um, I'm gonna be interviewing Dr. Jill, Jill Bolton-Taylor for this particular chapter, who's kind of a, a, a hero, a heroine of mine, because she also suffered a stroke. Um, we live in this time, this vast expanse of knowledge that should make us all it would almost have an, uh, should have an effect on us that's like religion. Like, my God, how insane it is to be alive right now. How incredible it is that humans reach this point. How this tiny little weak primate who has very limited senses, who can't perceive certain uh, forms of light and is limited in their sounds, et cetera, can now look out to the furthest reaches of the universe. It's an insane story but we don't think about that because our world's narrowed so much, so much. And I'm not just saying intellectually, but also emotionally, right? And the brain operates by this kind of repetitiveness. Once a habit takes hold and certain pathways are established, we just go over the same pathways over and over and over again. And I wanna work against that and I wanna expand your mind, expand it instead of going like that, I wanna open it up to all of these questions. So each chapter 
is kind of hitting you in the face with aspects of our daily life that are so utterly confounding, so utterly impossible that you can't like narrow your world anymore, right? So I, I narrate the last days of the dinosaurs, for instance, once that meteor struck in, in Yucatan and um, like the brutality of it. And, um, and then just imagining that if that meteor had been pushed just ever so slightly off, it wouldn't have landed where it landed perhaps and it wouldn't have had the devastating consequences it did because it hit in this one spot where there was lots of beds of limestone that emitted all this gas that poisoned all the animals in the area, or it would have missed Earth completely, dinosaurs would still be walking around the planet or the course of evolution would have been completely changed, right? So um, I'm going into that, and that's sort of the book that I'm writing. I've done, I'm in the fifth chapter about that, and I want you to sort of get the idea that the world isn't what you think it is. It's actually more insane and improbable than you've imagined. Interesting. Well, we'll leave it at that. And I look forward to checking that out when you finish it. So Robert Green, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me, Nick. I appreciate it.